And please turn with me to uh, the book of Amos and chapter 8. We're going to read from verse 4. Amos 8, verse 4. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? And the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat, skimping the measure, boosting the price, and cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, I will never forget anything they have done. Will not the land tremble for this? And all who live in it mourn. The whole land will rise like the Nile. It will be stirred up and then sink like the river of Egypt. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious feasts into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Men will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. In that day, the lovely young women and strong young men will faint because of thirst. They who swear by the shame of Samaria, or say, as surely as your God lives, O Dan, or as surely as the God of Beersheba lives, they will fall, never to rise again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we hear your word today, help us not to harden our hearts, but respond in repentance and faith. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. In my early teens, our school orchestra put on a concert. I can't remember what else we played, but one of the pieces was Bizet's Farandole, and it has remained in my head ever since. And I was reminded of it when I started preparing this particular sermon. Farandole has two great movements, or interwoven parts. Initially, both the March of the Kings and a traditional folk dance are played separately in minor and major keys until finally they're played together as the score builds towards its coda or its crescendo. Initially, I was going to hum it to you, but then I thought, why not experience a, a live performance or the next best thing? Uh, so sit back for a second or two or a minute or two and enjoy.
I was hoping you'd enjoy that. Uh, I've just ignored everything I was ever taught about sermon illustrations. If you need to explain, don't use them. Uh, but hopefully you can now better appreciate how the, the score or the melodic line in the book of Amos is similar. His two main themes, sin and judgment, are repeated again and again throughout the book and then brought together emphatically as we approach the book's climax. The main emphasis of the visions that we looked at last time was, of course, divine judgment. But there was no specific mention there of Israel's transgressions. However, here in chapter 8, once again, Amos draws our attention to the underlying rationale, the cause of judgment, the sin that had evoked God's sanctions. Amos focuses the spotlight once more on what Israel was doing as he builds towards his crescendo. Uh, the first offense highlighted here is the mistreatment of others. Back in chapter 2, the Israelites were selling the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Here they're buying them for such, but the underlying problem remains the same. They're mistreating other people. They're denying them what we would call in Australia a fair deal. As Amos puts it, they're trampling on the needy and doing away with the poor of the land. Rather than helping the vulnerable, they're exploiting them. They've turned people into a kind of commodity. They're walking over the needy and wiping out the poor. Not that they're trying to eliminate them, I don't think. After all, no one wants to kill their cash cow. But the effect of what they were doing was just the same. They're taking advantage of those who could ill afford it. They're squeezing the very last cent out of them. They're robbing them blind in the process. And thus some were being wiped out financially, ending up in debt slavery, bought in exchange for a pair of sandals. Not content with fair trade, these greedy merchants were skimping on the measure, boosting, boosting the price, and cheating with dishonest scales. And that's not just a description of the status quo here. It's what these merchants were actually saying, or at least thinking to themselves. The NIV closes its speech marks way too early. The quotation that begins in verse 5 extends right through to the end of verse 6. Undoubtedly, there's a bit of satire here. It's probably unlikely that these men were actually expressing these sentiments. But whether they articulated them or not, they clearly harbored such attitudes. They indulged in such reprehensible behavior. Using an undersized basket, maybe one with a, an extra thick lining, to measure out the grain they sold. Using a non-standard shekel, one that was fractionally too heavy to weigh the buyer's silver. Rigging up inaccurate scales, scales that were both literally and metaphorically bent to increase their profit margins. Deliberately mixing in some chaff with the wheat to inflate the volumes and further cheat the little guy, the person who could least afford it. Back in my early 20s, I worked for a few months in a furniture factory. And this company catered mainly for the, the lower class, the bottom end of the market. And yet, it was amazing the dodgy things that went on in that furniture factory. Defective materials weren't discarded. Instead, they were used at the back of kitchen cabinets where the, the buyer wouldn't see them. Faulty headboards were similarly tailored to look okay to the unsuspecting customer. After I left the company, they branched out into making mattresses for beds. And it came as no surprise to me to hear that the fillings of these included even the sweepings 
of the floor. And almost certainly, like Israel's merchants here, no harm was seen in such practices. After all, everyone else was doing it. It was just good business. That was the likely justification. But clearly this was no excuse as far as Amos was concerned, or as far as God was concerned. Indeed, God had expressly forbidden such practices. Do not use dishonest standards when measuring length, weight, or quantity, he says in Leviticus. Use honest scales and honest weights, an honest ephah, and an honest hen. Couldn't be clearer than that. In their selfish pursuit of profit, these Israelites weren't just exploiting the vulnerable. They were violating the covenant. Yes, they were sinning against the poor, but they were also sinning against the Lord who detests dishonest scales, who cares for the poor, and who instructs his people to do likewise. We may not consider ourselves guilty of exploiting the poor today, and yet, in our globalized economy, let's not be too sure. At the very least, we may well be complicit. When my boys were teenagers, they and their mates started up a basketball team, and I decided to get them a nice new set of Air Jordan basketball uniforms on eBay, and they were super quality, and the best thing was they were a real bargain. I think they cost around 10 bucks each, a fraction of what they would cost in Rebel Sport or even on East Bay, if you know what that is. If you don't, it doesn't matter. <laughs> the catch, of course, was that these uniforms, these Air Jordan uniforms, weren't really authentic. They were rip-offs, doubtless made in some Chinese sweatshop for the staff that paid a pittance. It's tempting, isn't it, to turn a blind eye to the harsh realities, to put our own interests ahead of the interests of others. To be complicit in crumpling the needy, buying them in exchange for a pair of sandals, or maybe in our case, a dodgy pair of sneakers. But even without such complicity, we may still be just as selfish and just as unloving as those Amos is addressing here. John Wesley famously quipped, the last part of a man to be converted is his wallet. And yet James reminds us, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself be from being polluted by the world. Friends, this was clearly the, the major problem with the kind of piety that we see here in Amos. Like Amaziah, the folk that Amos was addressing were not a religious folk. They observed their religious festivals. They sang along with the temple choir. They even considered themselves strict Sabbatarians. They closed up shop every week. They even suspended trade for the New Moon Festival. Like later Pharisees, they went above and beyond. They expected ritual obligations. And yet it's clear from verse 5, they did so out of duty rather than delight. Mentally, they couldn't wait for the Sabbath to be over. Physically, they were at the temple, okay, but their mind was certainly not on God. Even on their holy days, their, their ritual holidays, business interests consumed them. Making a fast buck was all they could think about. Their piety was shallow. Their devotion to God was little more than a sham. It made no real difference to their conduct. There was no correlation between their worship and their lifestyle, between their religious piety and their social practice, between their spiritual activity and their business pursuits. 
So not surprisingly, Amos takes aim and highlights the problem with all such religion. It may satisfy ourselves, and it may impress others, but it doesn't impress God. God sees right through such religious veneer. He sees into hearts and minds. He knows our thoughts and our actions. He sees how we conduct ourselves at home, not just what we do at church. He knows how we treat our spouse and our children, not just our fellow students and our lecturers. Some listening to this sermon today may have been engaged in domestic abuse or some other unethical behavior. And the rest of us may well be completely oblivious. Your friends may think that butter wouldn't melt in your mouth. But God sees. And God knows. Just as surely as he saw, just as surely as he knew what was going on here in ancient Israel. And we saw in Micah, it's going going down in Judah as well. Just notice what God does here. God promises not to forget. I will never forget anything they have done. I will never forget anything they have done. The oath here in verse 7 is sobering. And it's made all the more emphatic by Yahweh, swearing here not by his holiness, not even by himself, but rather by the pride of Jacob. Somewhat sarcastically, God is swearing here by something that is equally and ironically as unchanging as himself, Israel's sinful pride, Israel's arrogant self-confidence, Israel's mistaken belief that they're doing okay as they are. They didn't really need anyone like Amos suggesting otherwise. And so the focus shifts once again from the offense to its consequences. Verse 8, will not the land tremble for this, and all who live in it mourn? The whole land will rise like the Nile. It will be stirred up and then sink like the river of Egypt. Back at the very start of the book, in the opening verse, we're told that Amos' ministry began two years before the earthquake. The theological significance of that earthquake is now being spelt out. Here in chapter 8, this earthquake begins to tremor, as it were, as Amos rhetorically asks, Will not the land tremble for this, and all who live in it mourn? The answer is, of course it will. Of course this will happen. Both divine logic and human reason demands it. And so Amos goes on to describe this tsunami of coming judgment. The whole land will rise like the Nile. It will be stirred up and then sink like the river of Egypt. And that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make it like the time of mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Drawing here on the annual flooding of the Nile, Amos points to the colossal effects of this momentous earthquake. It was one that was about to shake Israel to its foundations. And one effect, it seems, would be a solar eclipse. And that was an ill omen for anyone living in the ancient world. Not surprisingly, therefore, mirth would turn to grief, singing to wailing. Festal garments would be exchanged for the garb of mourning. And such mourning will be extreme, like the mourning for an only son, ending in nothing but bitterness. In those dark days ahead, things will go from bad to worse. Blessings that were previously despised will now be denied. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. He had done so before as a warning. 
But now this is not a famine of food or a thirst for water. This is a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Of course, the Amaziahs around us might not consider this any great loss. But people will know. People will discover otherwise when it's all too late. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord. But they'll not find it. This frantic but futile search underscores the ultimate terror of this judgment. As one commentator observes, nothing more clearly signals the end of Israel than the fact that it will no longer be given the word of God. This was the key to Israel's life. This is the key to our life. To be cut off from God's word is to be cut off from God. The spring, the fountain of life. And so the final oracle in this chapter comes as no great surprise. And that day, Amos says, the lovely young women and the strong young men will faint because of thirst. Those who swear by the sin of Samaria, who say, as surely as your God lives, Dan, or as surely as the God or the way of Bathsheba lives, they will fall. They will fall, never to rise again. These people have rejected the words of life. And the cultic deities that they put in God's place are poor substitutes. The the details in verse 14 are a bit obscure, but the general sense is very clear. They have substituted dumb idols for the worship of Yahweh. Rather than swearing in his name, rather than relying on the living God, they're swearing and relying on these useless rivals. But these are no substitute for the living and true God or for the kind of worship that he demands. Anything we put in God's place is of no help whatsoever. It will not save. Thus the prospect here is bleak indeed, even for those with the best chance of survival, the young, the fit. Here's a pandemic that claims not just the old or the infirm, but also the young and the strong. They will fall, says Amos, never to rise again. It's a judgment that is truly terrifying and fully deserved. But let's not be under any illusions here. The difference between Israel and us is not that they're guilty, whereas we're not. We may not be guilty of some of the things that they did, but we're guilty before God nonetheless. Divine judgment is something all of us deserve. The difference between ancient Israel and us is not that we are better than they were. The difference is that for us the day of judgment has already come. God's wrath on our sin has already been poured out in full. And it's hard not to hear echoes of this in God's words here in Amos chapter 8, when he speaks of making the sun go down in the middle of the day and darkening the day in broad daylight, when he describes that time like, like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Surely we get a, a little glimpse here of Calvary. I'm not suggesting Amos is intending that, but in the providence of God, I think that we have here a little glimpse of that ultimate judgment. But unlike Israel, Jesus did not fall never to rise again. Rather, he was delivered over to death for our sins. He was raised to life for our justification. And so there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. What a savior. Like B says, Farandol, Amos is progressing steadily towards the final crescendo, a crescendo of judgment. 
one that is very, very frightening, but one that is entirely warranted and fully deserved. God had given lots of notice. God had given ample warning. But Israel had failed to listen and thus was about to fall, never to rise again. Brothers and sisters, how will we evade such judgment if we refuse to heed God's warnings? If we arrogantly persist in our sin and do not repent, how will we escape God's wrath if we neglect so great salvation? Well, the answer is we won't. That's the biblical answer. We won't. As the author of Hebrews reminds us, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment. And as he and as Amos has so graphically reminded us here, it is indeed a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God.